April 29th, 2021. Pull up the curtain, settle in, it's time for the show. Today's guest, creator, and executive producer of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, David Page. How about those apples? David's got a great new book coming out, Food Americana. You're going to enjoy this one. If you are new to the party, my name is David Oliver, and this is my podcast, Overtime with Oliver. So last night, I'm minding my own business. Lester's doing his thing on national NBC News. And the lead story is how the CDC is now saying folks who have been vaccinated can walk around without their mask, outside, in parks, etc. About 90 seconds into the piece, I stopped the TV, turned to Anna, and I'm like, did I miss the part about how this is going to be policed? She gives me the not yet sign, 30 seconds go by. A two-minute segment leading off the national news didn't think to mention the hole in the Swiss cheese of this policy. When it comes to COVID, are we just winging it? Folks are getting the virus two months after getting their second shot. A very small number, but a number of women have had issues with uh, JJ. Then just stop giving the women JJ. And I'm not that smart. Horse racing opened at Fairmount Park this week. It's been too long since I wasted a day there. Did go scope out the new FanDuel Sportsbook from my day job with KFan590. Very nice. Don't bet what you can't afford to lose. Sounds like John Hamm has two movies coming out soon. If anybody out there listening is a friend of John's, pass along. You know, I'll be a good guy. I'll move some stuff around. Help out the local kid. Do my part. We can have all his buddies over from high school. Have a good time. Three things you should if you have not. If you are renting a car for vacation this summer, do it now. Seems in COVID, with no one renting any cars, most of the fleet sold their inventory Buddy of mine is going to Florida in June, 125 a day, not including miles, five-day minimum. Ouch. Number two, stumbled across a underrated movie from 1986, Running Scared, when Billy Crystal was ripped and Gregory Hines was a top-of-the-fold supporting actor. This came out after White Nights with Mikhail Baryshnikov, another underappreciated one anyway, Heinz and Crystal are good cops, going above and beyond. Jimmy Smits, in his first real movie role, plays the very stereotypical Hispanic bad guy. Some of it does not age well, but what does from the mid-80s? So, from this part to President Santos 20 years later, progress comes in small steps. Here is where I ask you to subscribe. Let me tell you about future episodes, St. Louis 7s, and some other podcasts are on our YouTube channel, OT with Oliver. I'd also recommend following me on Twitter, same handle, OT with Oliver. Lastly, if you like this episode, check out other ones. We've done really fun stuff with Emos, Crown Candy, Gus's Pretzels, had a very well-received episode with Ann Lemons Pollock promoting her two lost restaurants in St. Louis books. For those wondering... The second book has done well. All right, enjoyed this one. David Page, little backstory on how this came to be. One of the podcast groups I belong to sends out a weekly email that profiles folks who want to be guests and podcasts looking for guests. OT, you know, we're pretty niche, but when I saw David's credentials, I zipped off an email and I got a response that day from David. Not as people, no paperwork to fill out, just when and where. Refreshing. Like everything in Hollywood that lasts any amount of time, there was a fallout with David and Triple D, and folks were paid money to not say much. So I didn't pry, but we get to it. We do also dive into the book because there's a lot of great stuff there. 
but I wanted to first talk about the people and places he saw as a investigative reporter for ABC. Welcome to the Overtime family, David Page. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations on having quite the career. Thank you. Thank you very much. That just means I'm old. <laughs> or that you need more time to read all those books behind you. Uh, well, that's a virtual background. <laughs> if I showed you the real background, you'd know I was a writer because the room's a shithole. Um, and I don't like the blooming, so I have purchased a vinyl background that looks the same, but I haven't set it up yet. What I end up doing is go to Amazon and buy like a big green backdrop. Mm -hmm. And then this little kindergarten logo that we have, at least anything that we put up there against the green sheet, turns out, right. pretty, well. Turns out pretty well. Well, there you go. Um, do you so, use video from this? Actually, I do it from my home office. No, no, but uh, are you going to post the video? Do I have to care about my hair? Uh, if you want to post it, we can post it. And if you prefer not to, then we don't have to. I do not have any strong feelings either way. Okay. Well, at any point during this, if you got to get up and go or do something, we'll just edit it out and we'll figure it out. Good, because it's allergy season here and I'm coughing a fair amount. So, What, what kind of dog is that in the background? That is my puggle who is out on the deck next to my office threatening the neighborhood. <laughs> um, Buffy, come here, sweetie. I got a black lab also, but she doesn't give a shit. Buffy, come on. I'm going to have to get her in. Hold on. Take your time. Come on, sweetie. Come on in. There you go. There you go, you little weasel. Okay. Um, how long does this run, generally? About 45 minutes or so. Okay. Could take longer. You are my first guest who ever walked through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin when they were tearing the wall down. They weren't yet tearing it down. It was the night it opened. What was that like? It was insane. Um, we were doing there. We had been covering all of the communist governments, the revolutions throughout Eastern Europe. And it was clear that something was going to have to give in East Germany slash East Berlin. So Knightley came to the wall with Brokaw. And we put up our big lights, which to this day, I think, help incite things. Uh, but that was the time that the East German government chose to announce that anyone could leave. So they did. <laughs> How long did you stay? What's that? How long did you stay? Well, I, uh, I had just done the Romanian Revolution, the Czech Revolution. I must have stayed in uh, the Hungarian um, collapse. I don't know. I must have stayed in East Berlin at that point a week or 10 days. But I, that was my I, I was based out of Budapest at that point to cover the pretty obviously impending fall of communism throughout the East Bloc. So it, at that point, it wasn't a surprise. I have never even had a blood orange. And yet you've had one with Yasser Arafat. Well, he was a pretty long way down the table. Um, the fun thing about that story is that was in the day when the PLO was still listed by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. 
and refused to acknowledge the existence of Israel, <clears throat> no one in the PLO would say the word Israel. They would only refer to it as the Zionist entity. And God forbid you even imply that you'd been to Israel. So it's three in the morning. We're sitting at this long table having breakfast with Arafat and his minions. And it's always the sound man who does something like this. He reaches across the table to get a blood orange, picks it up and says, blood oranges. I haven't had one of these since I was in Israel. And the entire table goes dead silent for about 10 seconds. And then conversation resumes as if he'd never said it. He said the I word. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back in the day, you know, we all had to have two passports. The one that you would use to go to Israel and the one that you'd use to go everywhere else because an Israeli passport stamp would just kick you out of any country in the Arab world at that point. Well, as we inferred at the beginning, you have led the life. We're here to talk about a book that you've got coming out, which, by the way, I've read and thoroughly enjoyed. Thoroughly it's enjoyed. nice to have an interviewer read the book. Honestly, God, you liked it? I here's what I liked about it. You broke it down into chapters and each chapter was an Americanized food. So pizza, Mexican barbecue, fried chicken, sushi, bagels, wings, burgers, seafood, Chinese. And then of course, how brilliant of you to end the book with dessert and ice cream. You have to have ice cream at the end. It took you two years to uh, write the book. Yeah. I, it, it, it's my first book. And I made the mistake of deciding to do that many different foods without thinking it through because the amount of research required to do a chapter wasn't much less than the amount of research that would have been required to do a whole book. So I ended up kind of researching a dozen books to put out my first book. <laughs> now, and how, now, how long ago did it print? Because this book, as you read it, is very timely. Uh, it uh, The print... A uh, version of it comes out on May 4th. Uh, it's already out on Kindle and audiobook, but they actually had a, a mishap at the printing plant, which delayed the physical book release, but it comes out May 4th. So when did you submit it, I guess, was really what I was asking. Oh, you I'm sorry. About COVID, uh, you talked about some really timely stuff. Yeah, well, we've been working on it uh, and submitting chapters as we go, but we locked it about, uh, I don't know, eight, 10 weeks ago. I read somewhere that you are a big fan of Big J journalism, and you can see that in the book. Well, it's very kind of you. Um, but yeah, I, I've always, look, much of my career, I was an investigative journalist. I ran the investigative unit at 2020. I've always been this kind of stodgy, harumphy fanatic about facts and truth. When I was running diners, drive-ins, and dives, for example, I held the show to the same standards I held the 2020 investigative unit to. Every fact had to be checked. Every fact had to be right. Um, I mean, I could go into a lengthy diatribe about um, the unfortunate drop in public opinion of the media. Much of it brought on itself, some of it not. But I think it's essential that we, if we strive to tell a factual story, we tell a totally factual story. As I used to tell producers when they would submit a script that was not entirely accurate, uh, if you want poetic license, go write a poem. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I got a novella for you in the back of my car. Oh, good. Yeah, please bring it in. <laughs> Every chapter, the one constant theme, David, I pick up anyway, is you really get the passion of the mom and pops to come through. Well, that's the soul of good cooking. You know, we become such a chain-oriented country, and and I'm I'm sorry, the the stockholders of all of these chains um, deserve to make whatever they make, but that isn't food. Uh, so much of what we eat in the country today is defrosted, and I I think that's just a real shame. As as I saw when I was doing diners, as I experienced when I was working in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. True food made by people who give a damn about it mm. is something very special. And especially during the pandemic, you know, many, many mom and pops didn't make it. Many mom and pops were run out of business and they were already an endangered species. So I'll do everything I can to support the concept of going to a local restaurant, making food by hand. So we're going to get the triple D. I'm a huge fan, but I want to talk about the book because this is why Please. you were kind enough to give me the time. First chapter is about pizza. My hometown, Emo's, made the book. Marty's been on the show before. We actually, like one of our top first five episodes was sitting down with Emo's because this podcast is really over and above trying to document St. Louis stuff. Mm -hmm. They tell it like it is. Why Provel? Why Thin Crust? Because that's what we had. I assume... I assume it's Provence. That's what was there. Is there a deeper story behind it? No. The the thing that I found is cute. So St. Louis is pretty Catholic, right? Especially in the late 40s, mm-hmm. early 50s. Sure. And so you can't eat meat on Fridays. Right. So they would walk down to the pub at 12.01 on Saturday to get their sausage and pepperoni pizza. And they were like, you know what? This would be a lot easier if somebody could deliver it to us. Uh-huh. And so when they started their pizza place, they were one of the first ones in St. Louis that provided limited delivering. And what's really interesting to me anyway, David, on the other side of the world, the same thing's happening with Pizza Hut and with Domino's. It's like something in that time period just started everybody thinking this way. And delivery started, and Emo's is really the big chain in town. Well, Pizza Hut and uh, Domino's were the two big chains that redefined pizza in the 50s and 60s. They're the ones that nationalized it in what I personally think is an unfortunately bland and disappointing way. Nonetheless, one of their big attractions was delivery. Now, they didn't invent it. There were plenty of mom and pops delivering before then, but they were kind of like Patton's army rolling through open territory. And they brought the concept of pizza delivery with them as, as they moved throughout the country. And, you know, move, move into uh, recent times and everything's been delivery during the pandemic. Right. Um, but pizza obviously was, either the first or among the first to go in that direction. And there's another theme in your book on how things are coming back around to how they started. And in pizza, you're getting your artisan and you're getting fast casual kind of colliding with each other. 
Well, there's still a price point difference in many cases, but yes, your uh, fast casual pizza um, like Blaze or Mod, uh, they're doing very well using basically the Chipotle model. Um, fresh or fresher food, they say, done to your choice. I want this, 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 and this. Blaze, for example, does not charge by the ingredient. If you want your pizza to be four feet tall, it can be four feet tall. Um, while Artisan Pizza obviously is selling something else, it's selling taste, uh, authenticity, as much as I hate that word, quality of cooking and care. Um, and artisanal pizza is, is doing very well uh, throughout the country. <coughs> Bless you. Pardon me. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to spend some time with Tony Gemignani. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Let me we got take time. Take a good, yeah, get some water. I'll pick it up at Tony. <clears throat> it's the, it's uh, t t Tony. To Tony, right. I had some, uh, I had the opportunity to spend some time with Tony Gemignani, one of the leading lights of pizza in the United States as he taught pizza school in one of his restaurants in San Francisco, uh, Tony has really been a major factor in getting pizza makers to consider upping the quality of their ingredients, using specific ovens to cook specific types of pizza, and trying to be true to whatever kind of pizza they're preparing. Um, pizza Napolitano, for example, pizza supposedly as made in Naples is very popular throughout the U.S., but very few places make it the way it's made in Naples. Uh, in Naples, it's soupy, it's wet, and that's not something that most Americans, in my view, are going to take kindly to. In fact, at Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, which is probably the leading artisanal pizzeria in America, they don't make uh, pizza Napolitano. Uh, Chris Bianco, the owner, explained to me that he likes his crust um, crispier than, than a Napolitano. So he's making a pizza that's more like you'd get in Puglia or in Rome. Um, and pizza, pizza Napolitano is a very hard thing to make correctly. The uh, section of the book where I describe my attempt to make pizza in a wood-fired oven. That was a pizza Napolitano. And as I also explained, hold on. That's it, Buffy, that's all you get. <laughs> and as I also explained, uh, it's harder than hell and hotter than hell to do correctly. I was, uh, I was not the leading student in the class. Moving on to Mexican food in your chapter, people forget when Mexican restaurants first opened, they had to educate the customers on what they were serving and what they were getting. Well, yeah, at the very beginning, menus actually explained what each item was because this was brand new stuff. Now, what's interesting about it is that it was initially made in America by people who hadn't intended to be Americans. Uh, the Mexican-American War, which ended in 1848, cut Mexico in half. And the part north of the Rio Grande 
suddenly filled with residents of Mexico, they now became residents of the United States. And they went on attempting to eat as they had been eating up to that point. Although over time, absence of certain ingredients that they could get in Mexico forced a change in the food. And then as there was an attempt made to interest Anglos in eating Mexican food, there were changes made to suit the American palate of the time, such as toning down the heat, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really Taco Bell of all companies, entities. It was Taco Bell that introduced American and Mexican food beyond the areas in which it was native. Uh, it was Taco Bell as it moved eastward out of Los Angeles that first opened the door to Americans being interested in Mexican cooking. And when it was followed by the development of actual Mexican restaurants or Mexican-American restaurants, as owned by, for the most part, Mexican-American people, that's how something more akin to the food of Texas or Southern California started to become a part of menus throughout the Midwest and, and the East Coast. When I go into a Mexican restaurant for the first time and I want to try to find out if they're any good, my go-to is a tamale. Because you can get a really bad tamale, but if you get a really good one, then you, you're coming back for something else later. I'll, I'll, I'll not disagree with you on that. I mean, tamales are um, a complicated food to make well. And done right, they're amazing. They're, they're just remarkable. Barbie, now, go ahead. Understand there are different kinds of tamales. When tamales moved from the Southwest into Missouri and the central part of America, uh, somehow they became different. I'm trying to recall if they became spicy. Yeah, they became spicier. They, they were called hot tamales in the American South. No one's quite sure how that happened, but there they are. Well, doesn't a hotter spice, a hotter spice, um, let's see what I'm trying to find. It, 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 it helps when the meat's not very good. Well, I guess if the meat's not any good, anything that camouflages it <laughs> is, is, is helpful, which is why so many of the meat dishes of the poor, which are made of the poorest cuts, are braised at great length. Right. Uh, or as we're about to talk about, I guess, barbecue, uh, cooked low and slow to break down the texture of, of the meat. Do you own a smoker? No. Are you a barbecuer guy on the grill? it seems like too much work you know <laughs> my wife is always trying to get me to barbecue and i love to cook and i really like my stove <laughs> two tidbits that i got out of your chapter 200 years ago barbecue meant large event yes where did you find that little tidbit it's in all the historical reading of barbecues initially um developed especially for politicians, as a way of feeding large groups of people and having large celebrations, because initially they involved the whole animal. We didn't start cooking um, shoulders or ribs separately uh, for quite some time. Initially, the idea was get yourself a or in the case of George Washington celebrating the laying of the cornerstone for, I believe, the capital, 
uh, an ox, cook it over coals for an inordinately long amount of time, and bring in the crowds. At the end of the chapter, a very simple, every chapter ends with a recipe. Yes. And at the end of the barbecue chapter, you've got big Bob Gibson's white barbecue sauce. The reason I have had this before is because, and you won't know this, there's a guy in St. Louis called Terry Black, and he owns a restaurant called Super Smokers. And he's kind of the godfather of St. Louis barbecue. Like St. Louis barbecue has been in an uptick for the last 10, 15 years. Not Kansas City yet, but it's definitely award-winning. Long story short, Terry has won Memphis in May, and he's the only person west of the Mississippi who's won Memphis in May. And so he would have Bob Gibson's white barbecue sauce at a store, and the recipe that you have for it is so easy. I'm probably making it this weekend. I, however, did not know about Franklin's Barbecue, which you say is responsible for a lot of the barbecue we're getting nowadays. Yeah, just back to Bob Gibson's. Uh, I almost didn't put it in the book because it's only three ingredients, but it's such a legendary item, I, I included it. Yeah, Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas, really changed the ceiling uh, and to some extent thus raised the floor for barbecue in this country. Um, he, uh, Mr. Franklin, uh, was the first to really deal with the making of barbecue as if it was a cuisine. He started using prime beef, for example. Barbecue originally uh, would use not even uh, choice beef, which is what most supermarkets sell, but a grade below called select, because if you're gonna cook something low and slow, uh, the whole idea is to use a cheap cut and break it down. Well, Franklin went a different direction and started using incredibly high quality beef, really worked on technique, and within a short period of time after opening was being declared by those in the know as unquestionably the finest barbecue on earth. Now, uh, I have not been there. And not having been there, my favorite is Louis Miller's in Taylor, Texas. And Louis, uh, Louis Miller's, um, a brisket, Central Texas brisket and uh, sausage joint, the current owner, Wayne Miller, confided to me that because of Franklin's barbecue, they had to upgrade and they're now using prime beef. Hmm. And the concept of using prime beef in a smoker is mind boggling. But the, the care and attention given to barbecue these days in many places is remarkable. What's your go-to dish when you do barbecue? Oh, it's, it's brisket. Okay. Unquestionably. And it's, it's Texas brisket seasoned on the outside only with salt and pepper and never within a mile of a sauce it's just that's it on butcher paper i'll just eat that till i fall over i thought the next chapter was the funniest who could have seen the whole popeye's chicken sandwich explosion thing well you know it's interesting uh, david portalatin who is perhaps the leading food industry analyst in the u.s uh told me a couple of things. He said, first of all, Americans like something new if it's something they already know. Hmm. 
Secondly, he explained that yes, perhaps under the guise of health, we have been eating more chicken, but we fry it. So it was a perfect convergence of what we like for America to go nuts over a fried chicken sandwich. Uh, and it was also smart marketing on, on Popeye's part to really get that feud going, which resulted in lines and hysteria, and unfortunately, in some cases, violence and even a stabbing death in line. Uh, but it, it didn't just help Popeye's, it helped uh, Chick-fil-A and anyone else who had a chicken sandwich or was looking to bring one out, even McDonald's revamping their chicken sandwich. Recently. Your book says that 30 plus chains in, introduced new chicken sandwiches in 2020. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it just, it was hysteria. And best I can tell, that, that hasn't slowed down. I mean, the chicken sandwich is now a thing. Well, uh, and so we've done, as a family, I'm a father of three, and so we did our own chicken taste test, right? And yeah. it's, it, it's Chick-fil-A, Popeyes, and everybody else. I mean, that, that those are the two, and then everybody else is just trying to fake it. Well, the, the dirty little secret among chefs has always been how good chefs think Chick-fil-A is. Um, some of us won't go there for political reasons, but uh, they apparently make a terrific food item and they apparently provide remarkable customer service. We joked here, by here, I mean my group of friends, if COVID had had Chick-fil-A employees working the lines, this thing would have gone a lot faster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they, they totally own the customer interface experience. Is sushi an American food? Yes. Explain why. Because we eat so much of it. A woman who is a high-ranking executive at the largest producer of prepackaged sushi in the United States explained to me that when she was younger, when she and her friends wanted to run out for lunch, maybe from school, uh, they would get a hamburger. And that today, when her kids do that, they get sushi. It's simply become an everyday grab-and-go item. It's often very different than the sushi that is preferred in Japan, as we do with any cuisine from any culture. We've taken it in our own direction, which involves a lot of sauces, a lot of ingredients, a fair amount of deep frying, but that's okay. That's fine. I have bought sushi at the grocery store. I have not bought it at the gas station. Have you? Uh, personally, well, let's see. I think I bought some prepackaged sushi at, at a gas station. The gas station sushi bar that's in the book, however, Ninja right. Sushi Sushi Station uh, across from Tinker Air Base in Oklahoma, apparently makes terrific sushi. They make it fresh. Uh, they get their fish from a distributor. It comes in quickly. Uh, their sushi is apparently excellent. Although there too, they are um, careful to provide taste experiences that are likely to be popular where they are in the center of Oklahoma. So the majority of what they sell is deep fried sushi. Have you ever made sushi? I have not made it. I attended sushi class uh, with Marissa Baguette, the sushi chef I quote in the book. I attended sushi class at her house in Memphis with a number of students. 
Um, it doesn't. It just. It, it doesn't have to be complicated. Obviously, um, you can make it complicated, but you know you don't even have to have fish. Uh, sushi is defined as an item involving vinegared rice. You can make cucumber sushi uh, in about a minute and a half, and it's great. Again, talking with David Page, author of Food Americana. I did get a copy of the book. I enjoyed it very much. I'm not going to say I could, you know, pass or, or ace a quiz on it, but I mean, I picked things up and every chapter also has like a myth destroying idea or new information in case you were confused. Bagels was the next chapter. Bagels and Locks was created in America. David, I will start answering that question once I get my dog downstairs to the dog walker. You take your time. This may take a minute. Buffy, Buffy, let's go walkie walk. Come on, sweetie. Welcome back. You're going to ask me about bagels and locks not being uh, being invented in America. I did not know that. Uh, no, you had it in your lead-in to me minutes ago. No, no, no. I mean, uh, as many things in the book that I didn't know when it came to the chapter on bagels, I did not know that lox on bagels was an American thing. Well, lox uh, on bagels is obviously associated with the Jewish population originally of New York and then elsewhere in the country. But Jews in Europe did not eat lox. They didn't, for the most part, have lox. They ate smoked fish and Jewish immigrants to New York City in their poverty, uh, for the most part, ate herring, which was the cheapest fish you could get. They also ate sturgeon. But salmon, which is lox's brined salmon, lox was not available until the uh, Transcontinental Railroad made it possible to ship salmon from the Pacific Northwest. It was a long train trip. There was no way that salmon was going to survive that trip without spoiling unless something was done to keep it fresh. That something was to pack it in tremendous amounts of salt. By the time the salmon reached the East Coast, it had been significantly brined in salt and had thus become lox. Now, lox and bagels is a generic term. There's a difference between lox and what most people have on their bagels these days, which is smoked salmon, which is exactly what the name implies. Lox as a brined in salt item is incredibly salty to the palate, which is why it's a terrific thing that when lox became available on the East Coast, so too did a newfangled item called cream cheese. There was a dairy owner in upstate New York who was attempting to duplicate French Neufchatel and didn't quite succeed, but ended up with something pretty good nonetheless that he called cream cheese. And I like cream cheese more. Well, there you go. Cream cheese proved to be the perfect companion to lox because it cut the salt. Now, the Breakstone Company, which was a dairy, still is a dairy, um, I believe headquartered in New York, began running ads in Yiddish targeted directly at a Jewish audience in the Yiddish newspapers in New York. None of those ads mentioned combining cream cheese with lox, 
But having introduced the item to the Jewish population that way, it just made sense. And you end up with uh, lox and cream cheese on a bagel. Which and is I'm one of 52. When I see Lenders bagels in the frozen department, mm-hmm. I think bland, cheap, and, and maybe have bought them once or twice in my life. In the book, I learned that was the game changer. The game changer was yeah. Lenders. I had no idea. I spoke to Marvin Lender, one of the three Lenders bro- Lender brothers uh, responsible for this. And, and Marvin has no um, compunction uh, to acknowledge that, yes, Lenders bagels are not the New York bagel that um, he grew up on his father running one of the first bagel bakeries outside of New York in New Haven. Their bagel was uh, partially on purpose, uh, made less chewy than a New York bagel, because as Marvin told me, he really didn't think he could sell um, a New York bagel outside of the New York population. But additionally, their advances were in mass production and freezing. They were the first bagel makers to lease automatic bagel making machinery. And part of that process involved using a thinner dough. So right off the bat, the bagel was not gonna be the same, but that was the only way to mass produce them. Secondarily, they ended up making a sweeter bagel as well. I'm guessing that was on purpose, but it was the lender's bagel that that, uh, drove the Americanization of the bagel. That, that took it across the country um, to join up with New York style bagels being made by expat New Yorkers in LA. Um, and over the years, as Americans developed a taste for bagels, uh, we're now coming full circle and an artisanal bagel movement has, has popped up and is growing. But I, I do wanna point out, the bagel is such a popular American item today that the retailer selling the most bagels in America is Dunkin' Donuts. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's also interesting. In my cupboard, the most used spice is the yes. everything spice. Isn't that great? Isn't it? Yeah, but see, it, it's fascinating because there are two phenomenal appetizing stores that my wife and I like in New York. There's um, Russ and Daughters, which I profiled in the book, which is down on the Lower East Side. And there's Barney Greengrass, which is on the Upper West Side and happens to therefore be just blocks away from where my daughter lives. So we end up driving past there um, a lot and picking up bagels and locks to go from there. And recently, I usually order smoked salmon. I, I ordered locks, the, the saltier item. But I also or- I ordered it on an everything bagel. And I realized after I was eating it that there's too much taste going on that <laughs> if i'm gonna have locks with all the salt i have to have it on a milder bagel but i forced my way through it nonetheless hey you gotta do what you gotta do right hey tough times talked about appetizers the world changed 1964 at the anchor bar for those that like to watch sports yeah you were talking earlier about eating meat after midnight the one of the two stories told about how the chicken wing was invented at the Anchor Bar was that the owner's son was in there with a bunch of buddies late on a Friday and asked his mother if she could whip something up for them 
to eat after midnight when it was Saturday. And somehow she had a bunch of chicken wings sitting around and that's one version of, of the tale. The other is that there was simply a delivery of too many. Anyway. Yeah, we, we laugh about that in St. Louis because that's kind of how the toasted ravioli got created. Really? Because you know, toasted somebody... ravioli is a phenomenal regional specialty. And it was created by somebody accidentally dropped it in the oil. And that's how it got to. I love all hey, those stories. All right, it's so a fantastic are you, dish. Are you a bread or non-breaded guy? Oh, non-breaded. Original. Are you Tabasco or Frank's guy? Frank's. Do you own an air fryer? God, no. No, you should. Okay. Chicken wings are like chicken wings and tater tots are the two reasons no, everybody in the world need, should have I'm a... I'm sorry, you need the grease. <laughs> no, you it's You need good. the grease. Come on. Have you ever had a Korean fried chicken wing? Yes, very good. Are they not fantastic? Yeah, the bon well, there's a whole tradition of, of frying chicken and making chicken wings in many cultures. And the banchan chain out of uh, Korea now has more than 300 locations here. They are, they're grown by leaps and bounds. See, we've got one. St. Louis, one is, a, St. Louis is a big town, but we're not, I can get everywhere in 30 minutes, man. And St. Louis. You know, one of, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the triple D's you've been to. And so Munsuk So owns Drunken Fish in St. Louis. He opened up two years ago, a place called Kimchi's. So now we're mm. getting into that kind of a flavor. And right. the thing that's weird, and I'm not a supporter of the Uber drives and the food delivery places. I'm looking forward to the day when they start hiring 16-year-olds who make tips and, and drive because it's, it's so much money. But really, if I don't get downtown, the only way I get to eat some of these Korean chicken wings is to Uber foods the stuff. And there are days, David, where it's worth it. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. Although, you know, it's interesting reading the trade publications of the food industry. There's a lot of advice being offered to restaurant owners these days to stop using third party delivery because of the cost involved. You know, the, the third party doesn't just charge the recipient. They also take a cut from the restaurant. Um, there's a lot of professional advice to restaurants basically saying, hire your own drivers. You're, you're really, you're, you're spending a lot of money you don't need to spend. Which is more Americanized? Burgers, our next topic, or pizza? Oh, that's apples and oranges. Okay. They're, they're both the ultimate American food. Um, the difference, I guess, being that the German heritage of a hamburger is less obvious than the Italian heritage of the pizza. Hey, the next time you're, you're at a bar and you get, you know, stuck on White Castle trivia, here's something for you. St. Louis was okay. the fourth earliest city to open up a White Castle, but the other three have closed. So in essence, we are the oldest White Castle city in America. The original expansion of White Castle was only to areas where the founders could fly in private planes. Oh. That's, that's. See, one I'll win bar bets on that little trivia thing right there. Excuse me? I said, I'll win bar bets on that little trivia. So you can drink on me and then I'll drink on you. You'll drink on me? <laughs> well, you know, White Castle really um, created the fast food burger industry in the United States. They, they never grew as large as McDonald's and Burger King because they chose not to franchise. 
with one exception, every White Castle is owned by the company. Um, and obviously McDonald's and Burger King have many, many more outlets because they franchise. But it was uh, White Castle that basically saved the hamburger from the ravages of bad press. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of doubt about the sanitation of hamburgers in the early 20s, um, especially driven um, by reporting that had been done about the reality of life in slaughterhouses. And it was White Castle, which went out of its way to build its locations entirely out of medicinal looking materials like stainless steel and white tile. Uh, that cooked the meat in front of the guests so that... And they wore the whole white uniform. They, they wore white. The, the whole idea was sanitation. And it was their format, including the human automation of the process by which the burgers were repetitively made that fueled the growth of the entire fast food burger industry in the U.S. Pre-COVID keeping your calculator in your pocket. Dine-in was 80%, drive through was 20%. Mm -hmm. had people on my show, Lion's Choice, which is a local roast beef place here, says you can flip that. It's 2080. I don't have the exact numbers, but yes. Um... Again, keeping the math simple. So I apologize. While you were doing this book and it being so timely, were you taking out your pencil and erasing stuff and putting in new information? Yeah, I was... Um, unfortunately, removing some places that closed. Mm. Um, I was keeping a close eye on all of the statistics to make sure that uh, I remained accurate. I was lucky in that the visits that I or freelancers on my behalf made to large events had been completed by the time COVID hit. Um, I went to the Memphis in May barbecue championship uh, I had somebody go to the Buffalo Chicken Wings Festival. Uh, th those large events um, had taken place by the time COVID hit. In those, uh, those events were in 2019. The 2020 versions of them were canceled. And in 2021, uh, for example, Memphis in May is coming back, although apparently on a more limited basis than in the past and hopefully can return to full size uh, the next year. Uh, I had intended to go to the uh, big pizza trade show in Las Vegas. It was canceled. So yeah, there, there, there was impact. Is the impossible fast food burger here to stay? Yes, but it's not going to replace the beef hamburger. Um, there was a lot of dubious reaction to the concept of plant-based proteins becoming popular. Uh, for example, McDonald's uh, didn't jump into that pool until very recently. Apparently, they're now looking into or experimenting with possible products. I think what you've got with the plant-based burger is a larger niche than some people would have expected, but it's still a niche. However, it's large enough that it isn't even having it, it's not not having it. The failure to have it on the menu can cost you. If there's a party of five going out to eat and one of them won't eat meat, 
well, okay, there's a there's a burger, a, a plant-based burger on the menu. We can all go there. Well, and here's something stupid for me to say, and I'm surprised if this is the first stupid thing I've said. It tastes better than tofu. So, I mean, if you're going to go there, at least you got something you can Well, have. no, but it also, look, tofu is like eggplant. It is a flavor delivery system, okay? <laughs> tofu tastes great when you put something great on it. Otherwise, <laughs> it's a blank canvas. All right, David, we've got three chapters of that out, and I want to get to Triple D. Again, thanks for the time. Chinese, now, not knowing what I don't know, sure seems like no food has been more Americanized than Chinese. And correct me if I'm wrong, more Chinese restaurants in America than all of the big boy fast food places combined. That is the statistic oft repeated. I don't know what COVID may or may not have done to it. But yes, Chinese food is so deeply enmeshed into American cuisine at this point that it's, it's us. Um, and it's certainly, those of us who are Jewish, it's certainly us. Um, you know, there's that joke, uh, the sign in the Chinese restaurant on Christmas. We, we don't know why you celebrate their holiday by eating with us, but thanks. Um, <laughs> although, uh, realistically, and I, I touch on this in the book, um, Jews in New York took to Chinese food as what was called safe treif. Treif means non-kosher. Things were cut up into little pieces. It seemed unthreatening. If you couldn't tell what was in it, maybe you could justify it to yourself. And at the same time, it was seen as a form of assimilation. So uh, the Jewish population, I mean, it, it's, it's a joke, but it's not. The Jewish population of New York and pretty much throughout the rest of the country, we like our Chinese food. Now, having said that, Chinese food in America changed more than many other cuisines um, pretty quickly to uh, please the American palate. Chinese food first came here with Chinese immigrants coming for the gold rush in California, and they were feeding themselves. And occasionally, um, more than occasionally, they began, uh, restaurateurs began also feeding um, non-Chinese miners, some of whom were comfortable eating the food the Chinese themselves were eating, some of whom were a little squeamish about taste and texture, and pretty quickly uh, Americanized versions of various dishes popped up. The, the first being chop suey. There is a great argument to this day over whether or not chop suey is a real Chinese food or whether it was invented here to please the non-Chinese. I tend to go with the research that says it did exist in China, but it was a dish made primarily of offal, of, of pieces of organ and such that most Americans didn't want to eat, which is why it quickly transformed into a dish uh, using chicken or pork. Um, from that beginning, Chinese food um, followed the tastes of Americans in its development here. We like things that are sweet. We like things that are crunchy. General Cho's chicken here is a sweet, crunchy dish. That's very different than what it was when it was invented in Taipei. And over the years, we have become quite comfortable 
with a pretty standard Chinese menu. You got your beef and broccoli and you got your general Cho's chicken. Well, um, and you talked about your disdain for the word authenticity. I mean, right now, authentic Chinese food is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. How do you know that? Because I it listened to correct. a previous podcast you did. Oh, yes. Well, I don't like the word authentic because it implies that what we've done with someone else's food is wrong. In fact, what we've done with it is create a cuisine of our own. Um, it's, it's much better to talk about the food as eaten in a certain country. And the fact of the matter is... Um, there are many foods eaten in China that are now becoming more available in the United States because we've reached a certain level of immigration from China among especially businessmen and college students so that there are now enough of them for Chinese restaurants to succeed by targeting them, not the non-Chinese. I've been the book going to a huge food hall means, uh, which is a borough of New York, specifically the neighborhood of Flushing, which uh, was Jewish when I was born there, but is now heavily Chinese, and seeing stall after stall of food as it would be served in China today. Uh, some of that is perfectly familiar, dumplings, hand-pulled noodles, uh, even a kind of pancake. Some of it is food that might make some Americans wince, artery, um, stomach, tripe, duck blood, gizzard. I got news for you. It's all great. <laughs> now, do you choose to eat it? That's, that's your personal choice. But what's happening is at least the soul of those regional Chinese dishes that we Americans did not know of here. Because remember, the Chinese food we are used to eating came from one province, Canton. That's where the folks who followed the gold rush came from. But Chinese cuisine is as regional as that of any country in the world. And there are many regions in China and the food of each region is extremely different. Um, these days, food from various regions unseen here by non-Chinese before is becoming the basis of what's called Chinese 2.0 which is young Chinese chefs either replicating the food as eaten in China or using its inspiration and its flavors and its textures and ingredients as jumping off points to create a new Chinese American cuisine. I have a son in Boston. Mm -hmm. He's been there for three years. Yeah. I've lived most of my life in between the oceans. Mm -hmm. Man, there's a difference between a lobster roll and a good lobster roll. There's a million miles of difference. <laughs> um, and, you know, some of it isn't even the lobster. Some of it is getting the right New England bun, which does not have a crust on the sides so that it browns properly in butter. Uh, some of it's in the technique. But the fact of the matter is lobster fresh off the pier and while I consider myself a New Yorker, I, I grew up in New England and we would do summer vacations in Maine. Lobster fresh off the pier is unquestionably different than lobster anywhere else. Having said that, the technology today for processing lobster straight from the boat is pretty damn good. 
and lobster that has been um, packaged fresh or frozen and shipped out right away is acceptable. Um, there's, there's nothing that says, um, I, I'd eat a lobster roll in Utah at Freshies Lobster Company, which was uh, declared by Down East Magazine to make the best lobster roll in the world uh, in 2017. Although the place is owned by two New Englanders. Um, but yeah, <laughs> look, it, it's lobster is something very special and it needs to be treated with respect and the respect of lobster meat is not to mess it up too much. You know, I, I see I see lobster rolls with this added and that added and crunchy things. And I just, I, I, I want to like yell at people, don't do that to a lobster. Uh, on the other hand, if all I want is lobster and butter, uh, I'm not a fan of the Connecticut lobster roll, which is what that is. If I want lobster and butter, I don't want the roll. I agree. I agree. 100%. I, I, I just want a steamed lobster with butter. However, if I want a main style lobster roll, that's a whole other that there's a perfection in figuring out just the right amount of mayonnaise. Well, and you want to talk about Americanizing a meal when I can't yeah. afford a lot of lobster. Yeah. Mac and cheese lobster is awesome. Well, yeah, but see, mac and cheese is something a lobster can add a flavor to because it's a sweetness that contrasts with the sharpness of the cheese. Other, other items with lobster can, can lose the lobster. And, and by the same token, when you're building a lobster roll, you know, I see some of these lobster rolls that are just piled to the sky. Uh-uh. You want balance. You want the right combination of the butter and bun taste versus the lobster and mayonnaise taste. It, it, it should, there shouldn't be too much. Yeah, the ones, there is too much, too much, the ones that are too much, just put less mayo. Yeah, it's it's just it needs to be done right. You know, and it's our job. We got to buy some capes. That's what we're gonna do. Damn straight. Here's what I learned. Who is Steve Harrell? Steve Harrell is a very nice gentleman uh, who has retired from the business, and I believe is going to be coming out with a book of his own soon. Uh, and his wife Judy Harrell now now runs the ice cream shop. His ex-wife. Uh, the ice cream shop they have in Northampton, Massachusetts. But it was Steve who was really the inspiration for Ben and Jerry, Steve, Steve and Hagen does. But Steve's ice cream shop in Somerville uh, was is generally considered to have been the first real artisanal ice cream store in the U.S. doing mix-ins. It was Steve Harrell who said, what can I do with a Heath bar? I know, I'll chop it up and put it in ice cream. Uh, which, as I understand it, um, was incredibly useful to the company that produces Heath Bars, uh, because uh, until that happened, they really weren't uh, one of the top candies. And then Steve tells me that after um, making their product so popular, he then got a letter from Heath Bar telling him uh, to stop using their name. Huh. So he changed it to Toffee Crunch. But no, Steve is generally considered to be the guy who invented the concept of mix-ins. And in fact, Jerry Greenfield of Ben & Jerry's told me that when they were first figuring out what to do, they would hang out at Steve's in Somerville and try to get the lay of the land. All right. I enjoyed that story. And here's what's interesting is I'm hearing you, right? Yeah. Bar is an acquired taste for usually people who are not young. And mm -hmm. so including Heath mm -hmm. bars in the ice cream that the 
eight-year-olds are eating, mm-hmm. again, you reinvigorated a category. Well, one of the things that's going on with ice cream is ice cream is a static sales item. It, it, it's not increasing its sales, if any, maybe by a tiny bit. Because there is increasing competition from other segments of the dessert market. So ice cream manufacturers are finding it necessary to reinvigorate the market over and over to reattract adults, which is why you're now seeing um, many ice creams that are using savory flavors, that are using grown-up flavors. And you're also seeing ice creams that are offering added benefits like probiotics or ice creams that are marketed because they hide vegetables in there that your kids don't know is, uh, are there. It'll grow your hair back. Yeah, it may. There's even one ice cream that is it's called, I think, Nightshade, that claims that if you eat ice cream before you go to bed and it keeps you up, ours won't. <laughs> I did not know that ice cream before bed would keep me up, but there you go. So now we have to try eating the ice cream before we go to bed. Right, so that works out. out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, got about five, 10 minutes at tops. Going to talk a little about Triple D. Did Before every podcast, I know I have like two or three questions I want to ask, right? Go ahead. Here's what I know I wanted to ask you. Okay. You're married to Roberta, correct? Roberta Brackman. Okay. How long have you been married? 28 years. You just did a book about food. Yes. You revolutionized the TV, television, food thing. Thank you. Did you propose over a meal? Uh, I proposed over a martini on our first date. First date? She was, we were both working at NBC. She was the chief content lawyer at NBC. And I was a show producer. And we were on a conference call with a producer of mine in LA who was working on an investigative story and she was in her office on 10 and I was in my little cubicle of an office on three or four and Mike was in LA and Mike is one of the greatest reporters on earth, but he tends to go on and on when he's proposing or working on a story and the, and he knows this story. So I can tell it. Thank you again, Mike, for getting us married. Um, <laughs> this call went on forever. I mean, my beard grew and when it was over and Mike hung up, I said, being the suave gentleman that I am. But of course. That was horrible. God, I need a drink. And then as if it were a momentary inspiration, I said, you want to get a drink? And she said, sure. Now, when you work at 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York, back in those days, the Rainbow Room was open as a restaurant. So we met on the 63rd, 4th or 5th floor wherever the Rainbow Room bar was. And had had a couple of martinis, and and she said, "What's your situation?" She said, "Well, I happen to be living with someone, but I can resolve that." And she said, "Call me when you're not living with anyone." And we got married three months later. So that was the first date. How long did now, you? Now I know? knew her. Obviously, I mean, we've been working together. But how long have you been working hmm. together? eight months a year so you agreed to move in with somebody before you had kissed you know you when you know you know okay what's that you had you had offered to move in with somebody before you had kissed them yeah all right 
The cojones of, you know, you know, like, what's the Jewish saying? You know, you know, like a good ham? You know, you know, like a good ham? That's like a movie thing. I can see it in my head. You know, you know, like a good ham, right? uh, When Harry met Sally, when they got the couples on the couch. And one of the couples said, you know, you know, when you know, like a good ham. All right. So we're walking Um, through this. Uh, Congratulations. My my wife. 28 years. 28 28 years. It's no Thank small you. fee. All right, so and my daughter, my daughter is uh, just about to finish her MFA in poetry at Columbia. I saw something. What did you? I'm going to digress for a second, and I shouldn't. Go ahead. I heard something about you were with your daughter, and she asked you a question. Yeah, when my daughter was young, seven or eight. Okay. She looked up at me one day and said, Dad, how come every time we talk about some place you've been, you talk about the food? And that actually is one of the underlying foundations of this book. My belief that food is a gateway to the culture of other countries. Food is at the center of so many human experiences, and it tells you so much about a culture. Um, when I was lucky enough to work internationally for NBC, I looked forward to experiencing new kinds of food with people I had not known before from other countries because we over food, food, food is the great social lubricant. One of the things people are missing, I think, and have been missing for more than a year now, is the opportunity to sit down over a meal and schmooze with somebody. This is eternal. We, we've done this for millennia. Um, I just, to me, food is a central pillar of any culture or society or uh, friendship, frankly. Live to eat, not eat to live. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. so 2006... You're working with Al Roper at the Food Network. This guy named Guy Fieri wins season two of the new, next Food Network star. Bada bing, bada boom. We're making mm-hmm. history. Well, it was just that simple. Um, <laughs> yeah, just a piece of cake. When I left network television, went out on my own. Um, you tell people you've gone freelance, but what it really means is you're voluntarily unemployed. Now, Al had worked for me on the Weekend Today show, which I co-created. And once I, I left, uh, at that time it was ABC, I called him up and said, hey, I need money. You got any work? Because Al had still has a production company. And he said to me, well, I, I've been doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network. I could, I could give you some of that. So um, I began, first I began doing segments for his show, Roker on the Road. And then he subcontracted a couple of hours to me, specials for the Food Network. One of them was on the history of diners. Uh, Move on down the road. I start trying to pitch the network myself and I run into a brick wall. Um, There was a development executive there who was kind enough to take my calls, but everything I suggested was a no. Finally, after she'd said no over a series of phone calls and I'm on the phone again, trying to pitch something, that she doesn't want. She says to me, don't you have anything else about diners? And I say to her, oh yeah, I've got this show I'm developing called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. This was a late Thursday or Friday afternoon. And she says, hmm, 
we're having a development meeting on Tuesday. Get me a write-up on Monday. Now, that sounds great, but in fact, I did not have a show I was developing called Diners, Rivens, and Dives, and I had literally just invented the name and pulled it out of thin air during the phone call. So <laughs> rather be lucky than good. So I spent the weekend um, working on a proposal and talking to restaurateurs across the country, um, sent in a pitch uh, for a one-hour show on Monday. Shortly thereafter, they bought a special. Um, so we went out and did a special. And there was no thought at that point of it being a series. Guy had won the Food Network Star. And that was back in the days when they honestly thought that they could use that vehicle to create Food Network Stars. I think it's turned out over the long haul that you win, you, you get a six or eight week morning show somewhere and it's over. It's like American. Guy was different. Guy was, yes. Guy, um, while he was green as hell and had a remarkable amount to learn, he is the most naturally talented TV performer I've ever met. So he would suck up the information pretty quickly. But having said that, they wanted to try to make him a primetime star. And they had a couple of really big time production companies working on proposals to do that. In the interim, they figured, oh, let's try this uh, diners thing. Uh, it'll keep his face on TV. We did the special, it rated well. And at the same time, the two big production companies they were relying on produced proposals that the network didn't like. So almost out of desperation, they said, well, let, let's give diners a try. And they gave me an order for one unusually short season. By the time the second episode aired, uh, both the first and second episode rated very well. They uh, tried to tamp down my enthusiasm by explaining that, look, we don't think this show has legs. There just aren't enough places in the U.S. for you to visit. Well, we could probably get a couple of seasons out of it, maybe three. Now, I did it through season 11. I think they're in season 30-something at this point. So, you know, as, you, you talked about your big J journalism, all right? Yes. I've got friends who have been featured on Triple D. Mm -hmm. A couple I think you might have been to. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they told me was, like, the first kit they got said, mm -hmm. don't embellish. Right. Just tell us. You know, like when it came to how did you start your restaurant? Mm -hmm. Don't tell me anything other than why you started your restaurant, because we don't have the time to go through what you're telling us. And well, if, you, if we find out that you're not telling us something, we're not coming. So just give us the facts. I have always considered every form of factual television, you know, not dramas, but Anything I do uh, has to be the truth. I held that show to the same standards I employed when I was running the investigative unit in 2020 because the concept of lying on TV really pisses me off. And there's so much of it in reality television. In fact, I had initially hired as a senior producer a woman who had quite a resume from reality television. And early on, we butted heads when I explained to her, no, we don't make Frankenbites. Frankenbites in the reality business are where you take two different halves of an interview and you put them together. You right, right, right. say something they right. didn't say. Um, 
she, she got tremendously put out by that. Uh, got drunk, called me at home, told me how stupid I was. I told her that uh, I would accept that resignation. <laughs> uh, she called me the next day, tried to rescind it. But no, to me, you have to tell the truth. Well, you must have had a lot of fun the last four years. Uh, it's been interesting. Um, but look, I, I have my issues with journalism that are not based on any allegation of fake news. I think the standards of the business, especially television news, have unfortunately fallen, but it's, it's not out of any malice. It's just the reality of cutting budgets and doing things a different way. Um, no, I, I got, I got sandbagged once on diners. Um, early on, we did a place, a Mexican restaurant and a gas station. And I had an interview uh, from a woman, because after this must have been the second season, because I was on the road in the first season, and then I didn't go on the road after that. So I had producers out there doing this. And there was a, a soundbite from a woman who said, you know, I just smelled it when I was gassing up. So I came in. After the piece aired, uh, one of our editors, and she had gone there because he told her. And I went batshit. Um, <laughs> we had put an untruth on the air, and it really upset me. Really well, and the other thing, um, as we get ready to wrap this up, and, and I'm having a ball, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, but for my buddy. A time, too. Thank you. For my buddy, Bill Kuntz over at Highway 61 Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. This is what you created for him, oh, senor. Yeah. On his menu, he has little Guy Fieri faces for the items that were featured on the show. Right. He definitely promotes every time the thing re-airs because he yeah. sees a bump. And before I throw myself under the bus, he knows that there's a percentage of people that come into his restaurant just because they're hitting all the triple D places across the country. I cannot imagine you ever thought that was possible. Never occurred to me that one of the more gratifying things was I started to find out after we'd been on the air for a while that we were saving restaurants that were on the verge of going under. Absolutely. It was a particular bar there was a particular barbecue joint in Lexington, Kentucky, for example. Um, I ended up eating there uh, a bunch because my daughter at the time was riding horse shows and Lexington was one of the big horse show venues. And they explained to me that they, they were like weeks from shutting down and going out of business. So any help we can give to a good, decent, family-owned, hard-working restaurant I, I never I never expected we would do that, but I'm awfully glad we did. And I've had daughters and sons who have taken us on the college search tour and we've mm -hmm. triple deed places we oh, can that's good. probably yes. go. I've been to DC and Boston. DC was the one where I went to this diner where the sister and the brother fight all the time, and that was great. I think that was after me. Here was one. Do you remember the hot dog place in West Virginia with oh, the Brooklyn? yeah hillbilly hot dogs? Love I was there. Place. I went out of my way ten miles to go to there. What 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 did what did you order? Home wrecker. Darn tootin'. <laughs> they're they're a great couple. 
And by the way, the food there, well, you were there, you know, the food's terrific. Yeah. All right. So again, David Page has got the book, Food Americana. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of in my geek lane, but I think that if people read it or have an interest in, you know, why Mexican or why pizza and, and they don't want to spend 12 documentaries looking into it, it's all in one place. You can find it where it's at. I don't know you as a writer. Um, I've seen the resume. I know where you've been. I know I liked your book. Thank you. What's the movie going to be about? <laughs> um, I, we haven't gotten that far. Actually, I'm already working on the you next You got book. something in your head. What's the movie going to be about? Uh, no, I may, may, we'll get there. Here's my guess. Yeah. It's a journey of an individual mm -hmm. that takes you through certain... Not a lot of time, but maybe like a 15-year period of time mm -hmm. as he observes benefits and rethinks his path through life. Well, yeah, but, you know, with the gray beard, I'll have to find out if Clooney's available. <laughs> you can call uh, you can call Fallon. I think Matt Damon's looking for something. Yeah, well, he's always looking for something. Jeez. Good, uh, uh, book debuts, you can get it when? The Kindle and audio book are already out. The hard copy drops May 4th. They had a printing error, which delayed it. You know, David, one of the things 4th. I like about um, podcasts is they laugh, last forever, right? So mm -hmm. assume right now somebody's hearing this a year from now, two years from now, mm -hmm. three years from now. Mm -hmm. What is the message you want to give them if it is April 2025 and they've enjoyed you why should they look into the book? Because it'll give you an opportunity to appreciate one of the central tentpoles of our life and perhaps motivate you to go out and get a good meal from somebody who cares deeply about feeding you all. That's a pretty dang good answer. Why, thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Hope you did. It was terrific. Thank you very much, David. And another one for the books. We'll queue it up again and do it on Thursday. Thanks for subscribing, following OT on YouTube and Twitter. Again, the Twitter handle, OT with Oliver. Stay good, everybody. And as we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.